New York State has passed a law making it easier to abort babies right up to the very moment of birth. Governor Andrew Cuomo celebrated the event by having the World Trade Center lit up pink in honor of women's rights and red in honor of the fires of hell where he'll be burning for all eternity. Though religious leaders objected to the law on the grounds that it was tantamount to legalizing infanticide, Cuomo complained that they were being unscientific because everyone knows that babies don't become human until they pass through the magic vagina where vagina fairies sprinkle them with twinkly rainbow dust that gives them a soul. Cuomo added that such late abortions would only be permitted in cases where the mother's health could be used as a meaningless excuse or until people got used to the idea of slaughtering inconvenient children, whereupon all bets would be off and let the bloodbath begin. In a speech to a crowd of dancing shadows lit by an eerie red glow, Governor Cuomo said, quote, This is a major step forward in the quest for women's freedom and absolute evil. We plan to continue our celebrations by sacrificing a goat to the law's sponsor in return for a guarantee of worldly success, wealth, and long life, followed by endless torment in a flaming pit of night-black nothingness, unquote. Cuomo's announcement was greeted with cheers from feminists and hideous demonic homunculi, but I repeat myself. On the bright side, though more helpless children will be legally murdered now, at least this is an opportune moment for me to plug the DVD of the movie Gosnell, the trial of America's biggest serial killer, to which I contributed the screenplay. It releases on February 5th, but pre-orders have already made it a bestseller on Amazon. It tells the true story of abortion doctor Kermit Gosnell, who was convicted of murdering babies and is currently serving time in prison, after which he'll be appointed Surgeon General of the state of New York. Trigger warning, I'm Andrew Clavin, and this is The Andrew Clavin Show. I feel hunky-dunky, life is tickety-boo. Birds are winging, also singing, hunky-dunky-dee-doo. Ship-shaped, ipsy-topsy, the world is a bitty zing. It's a wonderful day, hurrah, hooray, it makes me want to sing. Oh, hurrah, hooray. So all the polls suggest that Donald Trump is losing the fight over border security, the shutdown part of the government. A majority of the people consider the partial government shutdown a serious problem, and they hold Trump responsible, possibly because he said he would be responsible and he'd be proud to take the responsibility. People support border security, but they're less sure about the wall and so on. But there is another side to this that the polls might not be picking up. With the government shut, Trump has been keeping a somewhat lower profile than usual and has thus been acting less Trumpy and more presidential. He made a good Oval Office speech and has even offered a thoroughly reasonable compromise measure that in a sane world could kick off border negotiations that would reopen the government. Meanwhile, the Democrats and the press, but I repeat myself, have been on full crazy ass, crazy leftist, crazy display. They're calling the president's names. They refuse to compromise. They skew the news. They hate on children and religious people. They've been pulling tedious, childish stunts like canceling the State of the Union address for completely dishonest reasons and basically acting just like Democrats. All this might matter because the fact is American politics takes place in a kind of netherworld between policy and personality. And it's never quite clear which of those two will determine the outcome. So who is winning here? We'll talk about that. But first, we have to talk about our new sponsor, my love, Untuck It. You know, this is absolutely true. If you work in Hollywood, 
Nobody tucks in his shirt. When you walk in to pitch something, you have to be wearing a cool, untucked shirt. And the problem is shirts that are not built specifically to be untucked don't look as good on you as a shirt that is designed just for the purpose. And that's why there is untuck it. You might think an untucked shirt looks casual, but unless it's designed for the purpose, it just ends up looking sloppy. Untuck it makes shirts specifically designed to be worn untucked. And not only do they look great, they really feel great too, even the wrinkle-free options. Tall, whether you're tall or short, slim or athletic, all and I'm all of those, all ages love the fit of untuck it shirts. And if you want a Hollywood career, you're going to need one. Go to untuckit.com or visit one of Untuckit's 50 stores across the U.S. and Canada. Use promo code Claven for 20% off your first purchase. So if you want the perfect fitting shirt, regardless of your shape or size, try the original Untuck shirt. And remember, use promo code Claven at untuckit.com for 20% off your first purchase. You'll look great. You'll be able to look in the mirror and say, yeah, but how do you spell Claven? It's K-L-A-V-A-N. No ease. Just make it look this easy. You know, the Clavenless weekend is coming up. And while you're uh, pre-ordering the Gosnell um, DVD, that may have been the sickest plug in human history, but here is a less sick plug. You can also pre-order Another Kingdom. Please do. It's got wonderful blurbs now from Dean Kuntz and Greg Hurwitz, who will be with us later on the show, an excellent uh, thriller writer himself, and he's given Another Kingdom, the book, a uh, a great pl- a great blurb. Please pre-order it if you can afford it, because it really helps the book sales to move up the ranks in Amazon. So it really is amazing how much of our political attention now is taken up not by policy, but by personality. And we even confuse policy and personality by calling people names like racist and sexist as if, as if that was going to have an effect on us if their policies are not racist or not sexist. It's only the policies, after all, that really have an effect. So it's just amazing to me how often we, how often we get sucked into deciding things on whether we like people or not. I mean, the midterms were almost entirely decided. Everything was going great. The economy was going great. We weren't getting into wars. Trump was doing a good job, but he was Trump and people don't like him, especially women don't like him. Rich, fancy, uh, even Republicans in suburbs don't like Donald Trump. He embarrasses them. And so that was a completely, in a lot of ways, a completely personality driven election, which is crazy, but it gives the media a lot of power because the media has a lot of power to portray personality as they see fit. So right now, we've got this incredibly weird back and forth going on about the State of the Union. It started out with Nancy Pelosi said, oh, I, while the government is shut down, we can't have the State of the Union in the House where it usually is because we can't protect you. And then the Secret Service said, well, we can protect them. And she said, well, I don't care because it's about politics. And if the government shut down, you can't come. And Trump said, he said, well, I'll move the State of the Union somewhere else because he could give it anywhere. And some there are people all over the country inviting him to give it, uh, you know, in their state senates and things like that. Yesterday, he said in what I assume for Trump was a final uh, decision, he said that he was not going to make the State of the Union until the government opened. Uh, and this, here's a comment he made right before he made that decision. I will say that the American people want to hear the truth. They have to hear the truth. And the truth is all about and said, I think, and I hope well, we were planning on doing a really very important speech in front of the House and the Senate, the Supreme Court and everybody else that's there. It's called the State of the Union. It's in the Constitution. We're supposed to be doing it. And now Nancy Pelosi or Nancy, as I call her, she doesn't want to hear 
the truth, and she doesn't want to hear, more importantly, the American people hear the truth. So uh, we just found out that she's canceled it, and I think that's a great blotch on the incredible country that we all love. It's a great, great, horrible mark. I don't believe it's ever happened before, and it's always good to be part of history, but this is a very negative part of history. This is where people are afraid to open up and say what's going on. So the press, some of the press is, is playing this as if uh, Trump caved in to Nancy Pelosi and, oh, how strong she is against House. Because it's all about personality. It's like, who's going to win here? And that you really do feel, I really do feel at this point, that Nancy Pelosi is in a bind because, first of all, she's trying to keep the left uh, wing of her party, which is in ascendancy, in in line. But at the same time, there are a lot of people on the right wing or the moderate ring, wing, if there is such a thing in the Democrat Party, who are saying, you know, Trump has made a good offer here. He's made a good offer. Uh, he'll give the DACA, the Dreamers, uh, three years grace. He'll give other people, uh, you know, some grace who are here illegally. But he wants his his wall money. And Nancy Pelosi is saying, I'll give him a dollar. That's what I'll give him. I'll give him a dollar. You know, a dollar. And she's beginning to look bad. See, I think, I don't think he's caving in. I don't think Trump really caves in. I don't think that's really in his, uh, you know, repertoire. But I think that what Trump is doing is he's trying to be reasonable. He's coming across as reasonable. He understands that at some point, or he believes at some point, people are going to say, well, he's giving in. He's giving some stuff and Nancy Pelosi is giving nothing. At some point, people just want the government to work. And that's and the, the fact that these people are it's like Nancy and Donald are fighting. You know, the fact that they're having a personality clash is not all that interesting to people who want the government to work, who want to get their checks, who want to uh, the government services that they use and all these things. There are some people, the intellectuals, I heard Jonah Goldberg say this on TV last night, and you know I, I'm a big fan of Jonah's, but like he said, he said he doesn't care whether the State of the Union takes place. Uh, the, what, why intellectuals hate the State of the Union is because it seems monarchical. It doesn't seem like good Republican government with a small r, that it's, you know, the president is just supposed to be another guy. He's like another citizen. Uh, he's not the lead of the government. The lead of the government is supposed to be the legislature. And it just seems like he's a king going out and addressing the people. And so people don't like the State of the Union. And by the way, I'm sympathetic to that argument. As Jonah pointed out, it was Woodrow Wilson, the worst president in American history, besides Jimmy Carter, maybe, who uh, actually started the tradition of addressing uh, the the public personally instead of just handing in a, a written State of the Union. But But that is a little too intellectual for me because, to me, it not only matters what happens, it matters how things happen. If President Ted Cruz said the State of the Union is too monarchical, uh, I'm a republic guy, and so I'm going to cancel my State of the Union and just hand in a piece of paper, that would be fine with me. That it should end because we're no longer practicing politics, which is negotiation and compromise. That's what democratic politics is is, right? It's negotiation and compromise. Everybody loses a little. Everybody wins a little. When we're not doing that, it all just becomes a a personality contest. And that, that we should lose the State of the Union over that, seems to me absurd. Uh, Listen, you're looking at me, and I know you're thinking, I'd like to have a head of hair like his. In hell, I would. You know, nobody wants to lose their hair. You want to go to hair club. And am I not the perfect spokesman for hair club? Because you look at me and you say, please, how do I get to hair club? Tell me. Hair club understands the emotions you're feeling. If you start to realize you are losing your hair, I remember that moment when I caught a, a view of myself in a mirror and saw that there was a bald spot in the back of my head. And I thought, oh, I wish there was a hair club. There wasn't then. There is now. And hair club is the 
leader in total hair solutions with a legacy of success for over 40 years. Whether you're looking to revitalize the growth of your own hair or to learn more about the latest proven methods for hair replacement or restoration, Hair Club's professionally trained stylists, hair health experts, and consultants will craft a personalized solution just for you. Go to hairclub.com slash Clavin today for a free hair analysis and a free take-home hair care kit, all valued over $300. That's hairclub.com slash Clavin for a free hair analysis and free hair care kit. Hairclub.com slash Clavin. You'll be able to look anyone in the eye and say, how do you spell Clavin? It's K-L-A-V-A-N. This joke will never die. It's like a vampire. Uh, So they're voting. They're going to vote in the Senate on two different proposals that might open the government. Uh, one, which is Trump's proposal, would, would approve the $5.7 billion to build the wall along the border with Mexico. And uh, there would be temporary protections for some immigrants, limits on asylum and other immigration changes. The second proposal, which is the Democrat proposal, would open the government. That's what they're trying to say. This is all about opening the government. We can't negotiate. They, they keep using the phrase hostages. They're taking hostages. We can't negotiate while the government is closed, which is nonsense. Uh, but and they, you know what? Actually, I shouldn't say that. It's not nonsense. Nobody likes to negotiate with a gun to his head. Nobody wants to negotiate under pressure. Uh, Trump, you know, has also has a point of view in that they should compromise a little bit on the wall. They just seem ridiculous. Uh, and, and, you know, it's like I said, it's all about personality. And that, by the way, is making our politics, the politics on the left is growing increasingly strange. You can say anything you want about Trump. There's, I've said a lot about his personality. I've said a lot about the ways it might be bad for us, uh, for conservatives. It might be bad for America. But what's happening on the left with personality politics is truly, truly Weird. I mean, you've got like Beto O'Rourke going around the country kind of, you know, (laughs) keeping this like drifty little dreamy diary that he's talking about. He's he's sending out on Instagram. He's sending out his dental work. You know, he's having his teeth cleaned in public. And you say, like, what the hell has this got to do with the traditions and laws and policies of America. But they're all doing it. I mean, uh, Focahontas, Elizabeth Warren, she's having a beer, she's drinking a Michelob, you know, and that's, and you think like, yeah, but you're still kind of a socialist. I mean, what's that got to do with anything? Kamala Harris, I mean, this is, this one really gets me. Kamala Harris, she's got some real trouble in her past, and she's the one, she did her mood mix. It was a mood mix, you know. But, you know, Kamala Harris had an affair with uh, Willie Brown, who was mayor of San Francisco. He was speaker of the California Assembly. He was a big Democrat fixer. That's what he was. He was a big Democrat fixer. He was 60 and married. She was 30, and they had an affair. And, you know, that's none of my business. It's none of our business. But he started to give her jobs. You know, they, uh, he, um, According to contemporary news accounts, Brown gave his then-girlfriend, Kamala, uh, two government jobs with ample salaries while she was just getting her start as an assistant DA. The San Francisco Weekly reported, this is from uh, the Washington Examiner, the, the San Francisco Weekly reported in 2003, aside from handing her an expensive BMW, Brown appointed Kamala Harris to two patronage positions in state government that paid handsomely more than $400,000 over five years. This is in 1994, so that was a lot more money. Uh, she took a six-month leave of absence from her Alameda County job to join the Unemployment Insurance Appeals Board, and Brown then appointed her to the California Medical Assistance Commission, where she served until 1998, attending two meetings a month 
for a $99,000 annual salary, which again was a lot is a lot more uh, today. So she's putting out her mood mix. Kirsten Gillibrand, an Albany hack who has changed her positions on everything. She's going on Stephen Colbert and he's holding her hand and ba- you know, I mean, how stupid are de- are Democrats? It's a good question. How stupid do Democrats think their voters are that you're going to fall for this and not sit and think like, well, wait a minute, what do you believe? What laws are you going to pass? What effect will those laws have? That is why Alexandria occasional cortex is such a an amazing phenomenon because she is kind of cute and she is uh, appealing and she is adorable and she's an ignoramus. And when I say that, I don't mean she's stupid. What I mean is she knows nothing. You know, I played at the opening of the week. I played part of her uh, interview her discussion with Ta-Nehisi Coates, the author, and how ridiculous her philosophy was. I left out this, which is the epitome of personality politics. She's talking, it's Martin Luther King Day, and she's talking about the fact, I mean, one of the problems millennials have is that things are great. This is one of the problems they have. Things are great. So what can they do that will give them a mission in life and a meaning in life, especially if they don't know enough to believe in uh, God? (laughs) So if they don't know enough to do that, they're stuck with this with a lack of heroism that does descend on free countries, a lack of opportunities for heroism, here is Alexandria Occasional Cortex trying to give them a sense of the heroic where there is none. I think that the part of it that is generational is that millennials and people and, you know, Gen Z and all these folks that come after us are looking up and we're like, the world is going to end in 12 years if we don't address climate change. And your biggest issue is your your biggest issue is how are we going to pay for it? And like this is the war. This is our World War Two. And it, it, I think for younger people, we're looking at this and we're like, how how are we saying let's take it easy mm-hmm. when 3,000 Americans died last year? How are we saying let's take it easy when the nth person has just uh, died from, from our cruel and unjust criminal justice system? How are we saying take it easy when the America that we're living in today is so dystopian with people sleeping in their cars so that they can work a second job without health care? And we're told to settle down. Mm. I don't. It's a it's a fundamental uh, separation between, mm. you know, the, that fierce urgency of now, the mm. why we can't wait mm-hmm. that King mm-hmm. spoke of. <laughs> she really isn't. There's a lot of room for furniture in that head. I got to tell you, uh, she, you know, the world's going to end in 12 years and America is a dystopia. Uh, you wonder if she's ever been anywhere. You wonder if she's ever been anywhere. I mean, I remember traveling in Kenya, going through Nairobi and looking at the slums there and thinking, oh, I get it. There are no poor people in America. We don't do poverty. This is poverty. You know, uh, she's, she's a person who has no experience, no knowledge, but it's all personality. And that is why charges like racism and sexism and homophobia. You know, I was talking yesterday about what the Christian philosophy, this traditional Christian philosophy toward homosexuality is. You can debate that endlessly. I have debated it here on that show with people who who disagreed with me, but they don't debate it. They just call you a a name because it's all about personality. If they can depict you as hateful, if they can depict you as awful, then somehow that makes you uh, unable to serve. And you have people saying these things, you know, yeah, well, Trump's personality, it really is too far over the top. I, you know, he's to me, he's doing a good job and his personality is annoying. And sometimes his personality does affect the way he does the job. 
This racism thing, I want to go back one more time to this Covington uh, story because my, my sister, Caitlin Flanagan, who is just a wonderful writer who is uh, over at The Atlantic, she's kind of the last uh, voice of common sense at The Atlantic, she did a piece about what happened at Covington that had an angle on it that people hadn't shown before about the racism there. She was talking about these black Hebrew Israelites. And by the way, you know, I've, I've had run-ins with the black Hebrew in- Israelites. When I was a younger man, they used to camp out in uh, Times Square, which was then a kind of hellhole, and I would get into arguments with them every now and again. And they have this, they're, they're nuts, you know, they have this nutty philosophy that all the Jews in the Bible were black and that King James was black and he translate. you know, he was responsible for the translation of the Bible. And this is what uh, Caitlin writes uh, in The Atlantic. She says, it seems that this is what happened at the Covington clash. It seems that the black Hebrew Israelites had come to the Lincoln Memorial with the express intention of verbally confronting the Native Americans, some of whom had already begun to gather as the video begins, many of them in native dress. The black Hebrew Israelites leader began shouting at them to the Native Americans, before you started worshiping totem poles, you was worshiping the true and living God. This is a quote, before you became an idol worshiper, you was worshiping the true and living God. This is the reason why this land was taken away from you, because you worship everything except the most high. You worship every creation except the creator, and that's what we are here to tell you to do. So this was heating up, says Caitlin, to be an intersectional showdown for the ages with the black Hebrew Israelites going head to head with the Native Americans. But when the native woman talks about the importance of peace, the preacher finally locates a unifying theme. He tells her there won't be any food stamps coming to reservations of the projects because of the shutdown and then gestures to the to the left where the Covington kids are and says it's because of these so and so's over there wearing Make America Great Again hats. And then both sides turn on these children. I mean, it's a, that's an amazing, amazing thing. And if you want to see, you know, now the New York Times is running pieces about the uh, black Hebrew Israelites. Uh, you know, they called them, they called them oh, a, uh, a group. They, what was it? It was one, one TV show, uh, station said they were there to talk about the Bible and oppression. And uh, the New York Times is writing about them saying, oh, you know, they're, they're not so bad. They've actually been uh, in rap songs and things like this. Let me just show you a quick scene from the movie Barry. Remember Barry? I sent poor Knowles to see it. It is a hagiography or a hagi- hagiography. It's a hard right? A hagi of Barack Obama. And here's the scene where they're trying to show you he's street, but he's cool with white people. You know, he's in with the, the blacks on the street. It's, a, it's an embarrassing movie. It's just awful. He's in with the blacks on the street, but he has a heart for the white people. And the way they show you he has a heart for white people is he gets in a, an interchange with the black Hebrew Israelites. Here is the depiction in Barry of the black Hebrew Israelites. Can we the lost tribe of Israel reclaim what is rightfully ours from the cave-dwelling white devils that raped our ancestors, stole our land, and dispersed the true children of God across the globe. Bree? Hey, I ain't no devil. This is not the words of Jesus Christ. Shut your mouth, cave Yes, you are a cave Do you know? What Jesus Christ called the white woman in the Bible? The female dog. And what is a female dog? Don't be afraid to say it, brother. That's right. A b- That's what Jesus Christ called you in the Bible. Well, how come you're using the King James Bible? What? Well, why that addition? I thought King James was a white devil. 
It's King James right here. Take a good look. He looks like Billy D. Williams, if you ask me. If you say so, brother. Oh, that Barack, he's so wise, so educated, so knowledgeable, and he has a heart, you know, it's like he's just, he, he hasn't gone on all sides. But the point is, when they wanted to make uh, Barack look good, they put him up against the black Hebrew Israelites. Now, when they want to make the white kids look bad, suddenly the black Hebrew Israelites are a civil rights group talking about the Bible and oppression. Because the thing about personalities is very hard to define. And once you give that power to the media, they will play it any way they can. Now, I know what you're thinking. You're listening to what I'm talking about and thinking, yeah, that's interesting, but nice watch. Where'd you get that watch? Well, it is a movement watch, MVMT, because that's how they keep the prices down. They leave out all those expensive vowels. You know, <laughs> this is, if you even see it, if you're listening, I can just describe it to you. It's a really attractive, uh, very modernistic watch with a black face. But the thing is, it's the kind of watch that would cost you a bundle if you went in and bought it in a store. But because movement watches uh, keep it simple and they do everything online, they save you a lot of bucks. A movement watches start at just 95 bucks. They could be these watches could be four hundred or five hundred dollars for the same quality from traditional brands. They have clean designs, minimal and really quality product products, which may be why they have sold almost two million watches in over one hundred and sixty countries. And all of those were to me. Get fifteen percent off today with free shipping and free returns by going to movement.com/andrew. Remember, leave out those vowels for extra savings. MVMT.com/andrew. Movement's launching new styles on their site all the time. Check out their latest at movement.com. Go to movement.com slash Andrew and join the movement. So let me just end this. I mean, I'd like to go on and show you some of the stuff, the racist stuff that they were saying about these kids. But the point is, even the charge of racism is just a charge about personality. The question is, what are your policies? What are you doing? You know, I don't know what's in Donald Trump's heart. I don't know about uh, what's in anybody's heart. I just know that Donald Trump has virtually eliminated black unemployment. I know he talks rough. I know he says things. Listen, you've heard me complain about it. I know he says and sometimes does things that I can't condone, but he's doing a good job. The country is actually in pretty good shape. And if we could shut down the rest of the government, things would be great. All right. Thriller writer Greg Hurwitz is coming up. But I got to say goodbye to Facebook and YouTube. So come over to dailywire.com. And while you're there, you know what to do. You know in your heart that you should be doing this. You got to subscribe. It's a lousy 10 bucks a month, 100 bucks for the year. With 100 bucks, you get the Leftist Tears Tumblr. You get me. You get Knowles. I think for 200 bucks, you don't get Knowles. I think is the way it goes. No, I'm joking. It's like you get Knowles. You get Shapiro. You get everybody. You can beat Walsh. You can be in our mailbag. Ask your questions. We solve all your problems. It's a great deal for a lousy 100 bucks a year. Greg Hurwitz coming up in just a moment. Talk a lot about the fact that when uh, art, art forms age, they divide into intellectual art forms, uh, intellectual products that nobody likes but the critics, and popular products that really kind of empty uh calories. I mean, I think that uh, I talked about this in the movies, that nobody goes to see the serious movies anymore, uh, but everybody goes and watches these superhero movies, which are really not very good. In the old days, the popular movies were also the great movies, things like The Wizard of Oz, Gone with the Wind, uh, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. Those were Oscar-nominated, popular, top-of-the-box office films, but they were also great films. One of the reasons I talk to thriller writers is I feel that in the novel, uh, which has become virtually a dead art form, uh, the thriller, crime stories, and science fiction and fantasy are the 
are the forms that are still alive and are attracting some of the best writers. My friend, Greg Hurwitz, I don't know if you're a best writer, but no, <laughs> it's great to I see you. I thought you were going to say, I don't know if you're my friend. <laughs> I was waiting for that one, Drew. You are terrific. <laughs> Your new book is Out of the Dark, and we'll put it on the screen so I don't have to hold it up the whole time. Uh, it's great to see you. It's good to see you, too. So y- y- these books are, are bestsellers. This is a really interesting character. His name is Evan Smoke. Describe the character. Well, he was taken out of a foster home at the age of 12 and raised in a uh, assassin program off the books. That happened to me. I, I, yeah. it, it, yeah. it is, yeah. <laughs> that explains some of the aggression, Drew. Um, and basically, he was brought up in what's called the orphan program to, to conduct operations where the United States is not allowed to be and to, to do things that the U.S. cannot do. And at a certain point... Uh, after operating and being trained up to be this person, the moral ambiguities of the program got to be too much. He left the program, went on the run, reestablished himself in Los Angeles, and is essentially a pro bono assassin. Now, he's only available to people in desperate need who have nowhere else to turn, and he's using all of those skills and and doing it to help people who are up against impossible odds. You know, it really is. It, it reminded me, it's, it's really funny. I was thinking to myself, you know what would be good? It would be a good idea to do the equalizer as a, as a modern guy. And then I started, I thought, damn it, Greg got there first. <laughs> because it really is more, it's more in keeping with the equalizer than the equalizer movies are. I mean, it really has that spirit of a guy who was trained for bad things, but he's bringing it to the people. And well, yeah, and it's like every mission that he does now, he gets back a tiny piece of his soul. Uh-huh. And so he's trying to sort of rebuild this moral center. But one of the things that's so funny is, I don't know if you have this experience, whenever I'm writing a book, I feel like if I'm doing my job correctly, I'm not starting with the archetypal or the thematic or the psychological. I'm just writing the story. And then when I'm done with it, I look back on it and realize what the story meant to me. Yeah. So it's sort of weird because if you start with the with the thematics and fill them in, then it becomes a little paint by numbers. That's, That's exactly right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so and 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 so it's this funny thing where like one of the things that I realized is, you know, he's given these the Ten Commandments, operational commandments to live by, by his handler and father figure. You know, never take it personal. You know, never make it personal. Assume nothing. How you do anything is how you do everything. And when the series opens, it's him sort of reinventing himself away from those those firm parameters and sort of breaking all of these commandments in his in his reconstruction of him being a new and different person. And it's so funny because I started writing these books when I was forty. And I realized in hindsight, looking back at it, that part of what I was doing and dealing with in my own life was looking at all the rules that I'd live by. Which were, which were pretty good and mostly adaptive with, with a lot of flaws and problems to get me through the first half of life. Mm. But upon turning 40, I was sort of figuring out, you know, what parts of myself I have to let go of and reinvent to make sense for the back part of my life. Right. And here I am with no awareness of this till my fourth book's on the verge of, of coming out. And I was yeah. sitting down thinking about it. It was like, oh, of course, that's what I'm writing you about. You know, this is why I, I really believe that politics makes you stupid because you get caught in this box of beliefs and it's very hard to get out and it becomes mm-hmm. about personality. I hate mm-hmm. Trump and I hate Obama, mm-hmm. you know, and this this sort of thing. But art makes you smarter because it actually explains yourself to you. When you write a book, mm-hmm. you're right, I, I write, I find I find my about two-thirds of the way through, I start to think like, oh, I get what, right, <laughs> what I'm writing right. about. Now I understand what I'm writing about. And then it all sort of falls in, falls into place. But that's really interesting. It is about reinventing yourself and it is in, a, in thriller terms, it is in fact a sort of rite of passage in into, into adulthood. You know? Yeah, well, and what's funny is you and I, I mean, we we are big proponents of the First Amendment. Yep. And what's funny is a lot of the time, and Jordan makes this point, Jordan Pierce makes this point yeah, a lot. Yeah, I want to that, talk about Jordan. Yes, all right. So. <laughs> but, 
But we figure out what we think by talking however imperfectly and stumbling and making missteps. And part of it, I mean, you and I have been friends now 15, 17, a long time. time. There's not a ton that we agree on politically. Right. But there's never, I never have a feeling if I'm with you discussing something that if I stumble or make a point that that there's some version where you're going to like judge my moral character as a result yeah. of it. Like we, we can kind of combat and discuss things. And it's so funny because with writing too, I feel like if I'm taking a frame of saying I'm going to write about my, you know, grappling with existential issues at 40, the book would be lacking. It would, it would be flat. Be, it would be Jonathan Franzen. And, Everybody would praise it. No one would read right, it. <laughs> right, right. But, you know, so it's interesting because there's, there's a similar thing that if you, ha- if you go on the exploration as a writer with fiction and let it take you where it will, it's a similar thing to having a conversation take you where you will. That's right. And the more yeah. that you want to armor and go, oh, well, you just said a, a buzz phrase that I don't like. You know, one of the examples I give a lot is when I, I was growing up, my background, you know, liberal family, and when I was in, um, you know, let's call it junior high, high school, if anyone ever said family values, I'd have like this knee-jerk reaction against yeah. it. And then, you know, I grow up, I have two kids, I'm married, I'm like, hey, maybe I should have family <laughs> values, right? I mean, so there's it these phrases handy, yeah. that we, yeah. but but like to to explore, and it's it's funny because it's one of the reasons I think that you and I get along so well is is if there's a basis in fiction and narrative writing, and it's and it's and it's and we're trying to be real, we're trying to write real things. It's an exploratory process, the way that a conversation has to be. And, you know, it's funny because I I was, I, I, you know, I I do some um, help with with Democrats trying to kind of wrangle things. And I I come back a lot. I quote you a lot for a line that we had. You and I were out at dinner and you said something about 10 years ago. uh, And you said... Every time I turn on the TV, if it's the Oscars or something else, I'm told how stupid I am <laughs> as a conservative. Yeah. And it really stuck with me. And yeah. it's one of these frames that really change how I view entertainment, how I view the things that Democrats are saying. And, well, and it's like this amazing thing because if I sit down and go to dinner with people who only agree with me, you know, it's like there's not as much that I can learn. Right. right? And, and one of the things about writing novels is you have to invent characters that you may disagree with or may hate but you have to get into their minds, and that really gives you a little bit of understanding and compassion for them, and it spreads you out. I want to go back. You know, one of the things I brag about here is mm-hmm. I, have a, I have a lot of people on the show who then later become famous. You know, mm-hmm. I, I can spot people, and I one of the people I brag about is Jordan Peterson, and then I suddenly realized, oh, no, wait, I didn't actually spot him. You told me <laughs> to look at his YouTube. Now, the minute I saw it, I had him on the show way, way back. I mean, Early he days. had like 600 hits on, on YouTube or something. But you, you knew him quite well. Yeah, Jordan was my thesis advisor when I was an undergrad. I took a young seminar from him, personality psychology, and then he was my thesis advisor. And then he and I stayed very close. He officiated my wedding, okay. which was kind of great. I always joke that it's it was the only wedding with like you know references to Cain and Abel and Kierkegaard. <laughs> um, we just rewatched it recently. My wife had a great line because we were rewatching the wedding, and she's yeah. sitting there. And there's one point where Jordan gets very Jordan, and she goes, "This was the point where I wasn't sure if I was getting married or being traded for a herd of goats." <laughs> um, but Jordan's been he's That's been really a big funny. part of like a like a good moral touchstone for me. Uh-huh. And then when he was playing around with his book with with it was actually on Quora he was listing these rules yeah, for and he life. Pra- he praises you in the book as an editor numerous times. Yeah, ma- he makes fun of me too though. Like it's well, a, yeah. Who everybody makes fun of you, of, of course. That's, usually usually behind your back. But yeah. you know, okay. <laughs> he had, he he did it in print. He stood behind it through <laughs> yeah, unlike you. Exactly. But um but what's funny is I love this Quora thing and so I put those rules 
in Orphan X. Uh -huh. So this is now two years before 12 Rules for Life came out. Or as I say, this is when he was lowercase Jordan Peterson, not capital <laughs> Jordan Peterson. <laughs> yeah. And and that was the template. I talked about those 10 commandments, the assassin rules that my, that, that are kind of more rigid. And I wanted a counterpoint with with Orphan X, so now he's you know assimilated into society to some extent. He lives under cover identity. There's a single uh, mom downstairs with a boy who he relates to a lot. And she's trying to raise this boy more properly or in a more like robust moral fashion. And so she has these post-it notes up that are Jordan Peterson's rules for life no. when no one had heard of it. That's which was, funny. So now, and so so now then, you're just stealing from Jordan Peterson. Right. So now yeah. all of a sudden, <laughs> yeah. you know, it, it, you know, so so we're all kind of tangled up in that. So his book came out and obviously is an enormous success. And I'd been writing about it. Then he's thanking me. I, I was helping him, you know, work and shape up that book for yeah. before it was a book. So it's so, funny how we've tangled up in each other's work. So you, I think it's fair to say, I, I'm not sure I would call, call you a leftist, but you're a liberal, you're a Dem, you basically... I'm certainly you, not a leftist. You, you, yeah, yeah, I'm a liberal. But you're, but you're a liberal and Democrat. Um, what do you think of the way he's been treated? I mean, I don't want to just talk about Jordan because I want to get back to what you were saying about mm -hmm. Democrats, but just briefly, what do you think of the fact that he's being called like a, you know, a sexist and a white supremacist and he gets called all this crazy stuff? Oh, I, I mean, I think it's reprehensible. I mean, yeah. I've been, Jordan and I have been in conversation about this before he, you know, came out with his position on Bill C, on uh, Bill C-16. Right. So, I mean, and, and a lot of this has been, you know, I was one of the first people to go on record and defend him when when there weren't a lot of people willing to put their name, you know, in an interview right. behind it. I mean, I think it's reprehensible. I think it's stupid. I think it's wildly inaccurate. If you want to bother going on and looking, he has hour-long, you know, uh, podcasts or lectures about what the alt, what's wrong with the alt-right and how they need oh, to get sure, out of their yeah. parents' basements. I yeah. mean, one of the other things, the charges of anti-Semitism I love so much because I always say, you know, given that Jordan officiated my wedding 15 years ago, he's the most incompetent <laughs> anti-Semite I've ever met. I know, there's a lot like, of... What an I, idiot, when you know? You, when you listen to the left, there are a lot of incompetent racists and anti-Semites. Yeah. So, so you actually go and talk to Democrats mm -hmm. about, like, you're kind of like the conservative whisperer. You're trying to tell them to stop. I mean, it really is uncivil to continually call people racist when you disagree with them. Well, yeah, and what I'm also trying to do is to is to figure out ways to get there's so many voices in the Democratic Party that that you would agree with, that we would mm. sit down with and be able to have very civil discourse and and talk about their positions that are aspirational, that are pro-business, that understand high conscientious approaches to seemingly uh, liberal values that share a lot of those same things and also come from a position of like, look, you, if you and I disagree on healthcare or on a tax scheme, I come from a position of saying, I know that you care deeply about people who right, are left right. off the dominance yeah. hierarchy. I right. know that you do. You have some different concerns with the ways that we might get there that might take away people's personal accountability and won't be as positive. But if you can leave this sort of moral judgment aside and start to have conversations, there might be some differences on where people fall. And so I've had this interesting realization lately that when I talk about moderate or centrist Democrats, I'm not even just talking about policy because I don't actually mind if some people are in a deeper blue district and want to experiment with things. Mm -hmm. The part that bugs me is I can look into your eyes and judge your moral character and find it lacking. I can judge your <laughs> yeah. lower empathy approach right. as being like, if I could just educate you more than you'd understand. And there's actually a lot of them, but the problem is, and you know, we deal with this on both sides of the party, the voices that get the attention are the furthest left they and the they're amplified. Yeah. And so part of it is, you know, with, 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 uh, 
Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez, she's she's plastered all over. And it's not just that this is Fox and Drudge and Breitbart sort of weaponizing this to strategic aim. She's all over the Washington Post and the New York Times right. too. Right. Because it's clickbait and readership. And for me, it's like, look, she has a particular voice and approach from a deep blue district. And that should be taken on the facts and the merits, you know, positive or negative. But there's a whole host of amazing candidates in the middle who are not going to make a headline because saying so-and-so has a very reasonable bipartisan take on tax code or, or you know, how taxes well, should be approached doesn't uh, get attention. But, but given that, do you not think the Democrat Party is moving to the left? I actually don't. I mean, I worked with, you know, a, a number of candidates, all of whom have what what you and I would deem to be centrist, moderate, certainly approach in having regard and respect for people who think differently than them, can speak to libertarians, uh, Republicans, independents who had to to win in the districts where they won. So not only in the approach, but even in terms of the value scheme of recognizing that innovation and accountability are essential and differentiation of outcome. So it's sort of like, if we can start from a way, and we're going to have different proclivities based on ways that we're set up, sure. you know, like big five personality traits or, mm-hmm. you know, like I happen to have a fairly high empathy, but I'm also pretty high conscientiousness. I can really understand. That's zero empathy. Yeah, you are? <laughs> you? Yeah, true. Yeah, you have nothing. You got nothing. Um, thank God you found Christ. Yeah. Because before that, <laughs> exactly. you were just, you would have been American psycho. That's right. Empathy um, only because I'm fear, I fear hell. That's right. Yeah, yeah. yeah that's it. <laughs> But, you know, like there's so much there's so much if we can get rid of and dodge the kind of aspect of judgment and actually have conversations. And it's a lot of what I've been doing. I I actually went back and sat down with um, Chris Halverson, who was the evangelical chaplain to the Senate. And I Mm. sat down with an evangelical group when I was there in order to say, look, I don't I don't care about merely winning points and doing all this other stuff. What I want to do is have people of goodwill and good intentions on e- on either side. I don't care if there's policy points that we disagree on. And we have disagreements about, as I do with you, about mm-hmm. um, abortion, about death penalty. Yeah, like we have course. different positions that yeah. we have. But more to the point is to say, look, if there's somebody who's a Democrat who is a person of faith and they're trying to figure out something, like let's say rural medicine, that is not a prevalent, a predominant concern for most Democrats and wants to get something done to help people in her district, can we forge across the aisle alliance to get a bill written that yeah. actually is going to help people? Yeah. Because that's an example where like, you know, we're talking all the time about the cost of healthcare, but guess what? If you can't get to a hospital, it doesn't matter how much it costs. Yep. So... Is there a way that we can raise the frame above who we hate, who we want in power, and actually look at it and go, the job of everybody is, despite our disagreements, where can we set those aside at times and find common ground to actually help citizens and and working people who are trying to figure out what they want to do? Yeah, yeah. Greg Hurwitz, you can tell he's not as stupid as I keep telling him he is. Uh, his new book, Out of the Dark, part of the Orphan X series. And why? What's with the two G's in your I mean, come on. It's, it's, just, for, it's yeah. just pretentious. It's my parents basically wanted to name me to ensure that my name would be misspelled for the rest of <laughs> the my rest life. Of and life. I would have to keep, like, wonkishly correcting everybody. <laughs> Greg, it's great to see you. Uh, good luck with the book. And Thank I'll talk you. to you soon. Um, you know, usually I end, I have often ended with stuff I like. Today I want to talk about something uh, I hate, uh, which is this uh, new story about Brian Singer, the director of Bohemian Rhapsody. Uh, the Atlantic Monthly has re- released a very well-researched, very well-documented story where he is accused, uh, Singer is re- accused repeatedly of molesting young actors and taking advantage of their ambitions and things like this. I have heard these stories about Brian Singer myself for years and years. And more than that, I have heard that this is a deep practice in Hollywood. And the thing that that bothers me is that 
In Hollywood, the newspapers, all the news agencies depend on the ads from the movie companies, do not want to cross them. I don't know how deeply the police depend on that as well, but I just know that this, these stories have been around for years and nobody does a damn thing about them. You know, I was talking to um, Sebastian Gorka on his show about some of the things I feel conservatives need, and among those are less opinions and more fact-gatherers, more fact-gathering journalists who will not deliver conservative news, but who will not be scared off uh, by liberal, um, you know, megaliths like the, uh, like the movie industry. This is something that I think is going goes deep into Hollywood, and I think we really uh, should deal with it. There's no reason why a young man wants to be an actor or a young woman. Uh, he should be molested uh, as a matter of course. All right, the Clavenless weekend is upon us, but you can suck up some more Clavenly goodness by going on uh, Amazon and pre-ordering Another Kingdom. Please do. It is very helpful. For the rest of you, there's nothing I can promise you but three days of chaos and misery and darkness. That is what a Clavenless weekend looks like. It's your choice. It is your choice. But if you choose to go into the darkness, survivors will gather here on Monday. I'm Andrew Claven, and this is The Andrew Claven Show. The Andrew Claven Show is produced by Robert Sterling, executive producer Jeremy Boring, senior producer Jonathan Hay, our supervising producer is Mathis Glover, and our technical producer is Austin Stevens, edited by Adam Saievitz. Audio is mixed by Mike Cormina, hair and makeup is by Jesua Alvera, and our animations are by Cynthia Angulo. Production assistant Nick Sheehan. The Andrew Claven Show is a Daily Wire production, copyright Daily Wire 2019. Today on The Ben Shapiro Show, Venezuelans rally against dictator Nicolas Maduro, the shutdown reaches its final stages, and the MAGA hat wars continue. That's today on The Ben Shapiro Show.